cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast... I have, yes, an extra special guest. John Doerr of the famed venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins uh, is here to discuss all things venture capital and climate related. He has a new book out that's really quite interesting. Uh, We talk about everything from crypto to Tesla uh, to uh, Beyond Meat to all of the opportunities that exist uh, in order to help moderate and reduce carbon in the atmosphere and the potential climate crisis that awaits us if we don't change our ways. So Dora is a venture capitalist. He invests money in order to generate a return. These aren't just finger wagging, be green for green sake. He describes their venture fund, which they, they put nearly a billion dollars into it 10 years ago, and now it's worth over $3 billion. Uh, that's how successful... Uh, the returns have been, he describes the climate crisis as a multi-trillion dollar opportunity. Yes, we need to do something in order to make sure we leave our children and grandchildren a habitable earth. At the same time, there is a massive opportunity in everything from food to electrical grid to transportation, uh, on and on and on. It, it really is quite fascinating. Somebody like him sees the world from both perspectives, from the, hey, we want to make sure we have a habitable place to live, but he can't take off his VC hat and he sees just massive opportunities to do well by doing good. Uh, Really a fascinating conversation. With no further ado, my interview with Kleiner Perkins, John Doerr. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is John Doerr. He is the famed venture capitalist known for his work at Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield & Byers. The venture capital firm operates 32 funds. They've made more than 675 investments, including such early stage fundings for companies like Google, Twitter, Amazon, and too many others to list. Dorr still holds a substantial stake in his initial investment in Google. His most recent book is Speed and Scale, an action plan for solving our climate crisis now. John Dorr, welcome to Bloomberg. It's a thrill to be here with you, Barry. Thank you. And I'm thrilled to talk to you. Uh, let's, let's go back to the early parts of your career before we start to uh, get, get current. You originally joined Intel because you couldn't land a gig as a venture capitalist. T- tell us a little bit about that. So I came to Silicon Valley with uh, no job, no place to live, and incidentally, no girlfriend. Uh, the uh, lady I'd been dating decided I was too persistent and dumped me. So I, I, uh, I, my real goal was to win my way back into her heart and to join with some friends to start a company. I wanted to start a company, and I heard that venture capital had something to do with that. So I cold-called all the venture capitalists, and some of them returned my call in the uh, early, mid-'70s, and uh, they looked at my experience and uniformly concluded that I should go get a real job. That was their advice. Uh, I, I remember Dick Cramley said, we just backed a small new chip company 
called Intel. Why don't you interview for a job there? And I did. And uh, lo and behold, unbeknownst to me, my former girlfriend, Ann Holland, now Ann Holland Door, had gotten a job <laughs> at Intel. I got a job there, and when I arrived that first uh, summer day, uh, I was surprised to see her there, and she was not happy to see me. <laughs> so uh, it took the rest of the summer to put our relationship back together again. But I loved Intel. It was a dynamic place. They just invented the microprocessor. And I seriously considered abandoning my graduate education in business, as it turns out, to just stay at Intel. But I returned there after graduating and worked for, I guess, four or five years uh, helping uh, democratize computing. That's to get microprocessors used in everything from traffic lights to defibrillators to nuclear resonance magnetic imaging systems. And uh, it, it was all because I wanted to be part of new, rapidly growing companies. How did you work your way from Intel to venture investing? How did you find your way to Klein & Perkins? Well, I got a phone call one day from a friend who said, hey, John, I just finished interviewing uh, for a job at a venture capital firm, Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. It sounded to me like a law firm. I, I really didn't know them. But he, he said, you should go interview there because what they want to add to their team is uh, someone, a, a younger, younger professional with a strong technical background, a good network in Silicon Valley, and a, a, a passion for startups. I, I think you and they would make a great fit. So I, I didn't, they ran an ad, actually, in the Wall Street Journal for this position, which I didn't see. But I, I called up. I interviewed and uh, and got a job there as an entry-level professional, a gopher. I did everything. I carried people's bags. I read business plans. Uh, but there was one important condition that I had, and that is I, I made them promise that they would back me with my friends in starting a company if I went to work there because, honestly, I wasn't interested in venture capital. I, wanted to be an early 80s entrepreneur. And they had, they, they agreed to that and pointed out that they had backed other young partners at Kleiner in writing business plans. Bob Swanson had written the business plan for Genentech that led to the whole biotech industry. And Jimmy Trabig had done the same thing with uh, Tandem Computers. My current partner, Brooke Byers, as a young partner at Kleiner, wrote the business plan for, for hybrid tech. So Eugene Kleiner and Tom Perkins were unusual and I'd even say uh, mythic or epic figures in that they had technical backgrounds. They had started their own companies, and they felt that was part of what their venture capital firm ought to do. So here's the key question. How come you never left Kleiner Perkins? Why didn't you launch your own startup? Well, I, I did. They backed me in doing it. The first was one called Silicon Compilers. Uh -huh. I became the full-time CEO, founder of that, with a Caltech professor, Carver Mead. Uh, sure. Then as I worked with companies like Compaq and Sun Microsystems that were growing really rapidly, I realized I was not at all qualified to advise these entrepreneurs. So I, I took another 18-month leave of absence from Kleiner, to uh, run the desktop division of Sun, and uh, al almost left Kleiner permanently to do that. But Ann and I wanted to start a family, and she said, you know, you're doing the Sun thing and keeping involved in Kleiner, it's just not going to work. We, we have to make some choices here. And so I uh, left my operating role at, at Sun, but never gave up an interest in starting new companies and did that again at a later time with uh, a company called At Home. You may remember that sure. they uh, standardized and commercialized uh, the cable modem to access the Internet. Before the At Home venture, uh, access to the Internet was really very slow, and cable modems swept the United States 
and and our company was key in making that happen. So so I like this quote from you. Uh, if you can't invent the future, the next best thing is to fund it. And so I guess that helps to explain your move from Sun over back to Kleiner Perkins. Exactly. You, you know, uh, it, it was Alan Kay, the chief scientist at Apple, who said the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And while I've made some inventions, they're modest. Uh, my my better fortune has been to find amazing entrepreneurs, identify them, and then help fund and accelerate their success. Huh, quite interesting. When cybercriminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Amazon, Netscape, Applied Material, Citrix, Intuit, Genentech, EA Sports, Compact, Slack, Uber, Square, Spotify, Robinhood. That is just an amazing, amazing list of startups that you guys were fairly early investors in, any of them stand out as as uniquely memorable to you? Well, uh, two two of the standouts have got to be Amazon and Google, now Alphabet, because what are they? They're they're two of the four or five most valuable com- companies in the world, and, and I think both of them have profoundly changed the way that we. Uh, live, communicate, educate, inform, conduct commerce, uh, see the world. What they both have in common is exceptional founders and really strong management teams who have a sense of urgency and a focus on either large new markets or large existing markets that deserved and have benefited from disruption. So I remember when I was first offered a position at Kleiner Perkins, I told them that I thought it was kind of unfair that they would pay me to do the job, that <laughs> I would pay them for the privilege of working with these amazing entrepreneurs and founders. So when you're thinking about putting money into Amazon in the mid-90s or, or Google in the late 90s, at any point in that process, are you thinking, oh, sure, these can become $2 trillion companies soon? Well, uh, I, I had no really good idea how big they could be, so uh, I, I put the question to Jeff Bezos, and his response was, well, John, I don't know, but we're going to get big fast. At, at the time, I I kicked up something of a firestorm by proclaiming that the Internet had been underhyped and it <laughs> might be the largest legal creation of wealth in our, our lifetimes. But I was more clear and explicit with Larry Page when I met with him and Sergey, and, and I asked Larry how big Google would get. I'll never forget this, Barry. He, he, he responded to me without missing a beat, 10 billion. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, just to test myself, I said, surely you mean market capitalization, don't you? And he said, no, John. I mean revenues. We're just beginning in the field of search, and you cannot imagine how much better it's going to get over time. And uh, sure enough, he was he was more than right, to say the very least. So so let's talk a bit about Google. You're known for introducing to both Larry and Sergey your concept of OKRs, objectives, and key results. What was the impact of that? On Google, how did they respond to 
to your suggestion on come up with objectives and come up with ways to measure your progress. So uh, for, for everyone in your audience, uh, objectives and key results, or, or OKRs, is a goal-setting system that Andy Grove invented at Intel. And that's because in the semiconductor industry, I'm a refugee from the semiconductor industry, you've got to get tens of thousands of people to get lines that are a millionth of a meter, one micron wide, exactly right, or nothing works. The chips fail. So you, you, you need exceptional discipline, attention to detail, focus, and execution. And so Andy came up with this system. I was so enamored of it. When I left Intel, I took it everywhere I went, from non nonprofits to startups to large companies. Uh, the Gates Foundation in the early days, for example, uh, how they... They were, an, they, they were a very large nonprofit startup and an important one for the planet. So I took Andy Grove's system to Larry and Sergey, the founders of Google, in the very early days. And I went through it with them and at the end of it asked them, so guys, what do you think? Would you use this in, 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 in growing Google? And uh, Larry was, had no comment whatsoever, but Sergey who is more ebullient. I'd like to tell you, Barry, that he said, we love this, we're going to adopt it wholeheartedly. <laughs> well, the truth of the matter is, what he said was, we don't have any better way to manage this Google company, so we'll give it a try. Which I took as a ringing endorsement, because what's happened since then, to this day, every Googler, every quarter, writes down her objectives and key results and publishes them for the entire company to see. And Interestingly, they've never leaked. So there's 140,000 Googlers who are doing this four times a year. They're graded, but at the end of each quarter, they're swept aside because they're not used for bonuses or promotions. They serve a higher purpose, and that's a collective social contract to get everybody focused and aligned and, and committed and tracking their progress to stretch for almost impossible to achieve goals. And I'm telling you this story because this same system that Andy Grove invented has now spread pretty broadly through the technology and other sectors of the economy. And it's at the heart of this plan that we have called Speed and Scale to deal with the climate crisis. Huh, quite quite interesting. I'm I'm I want to stick with some of the early investments that you made and, and ask a really broad general question, how likely is it that a company you made an early stage investment in ends up looking like the company you thought you were investing in? Meaning, how often do companies iterate or pivot into something totally different from what you thought you were uh, getting involved with? Well, I, I was going to say not often if it's totally different. But if it's meaningfully different, that happens all the time. And that's why in the venture capital work that we do, it's so important to back, to find, fund, and, and build a relationship with the right people because the people and the quality of the team is going to affect how they pivot, how they uh, adapt their, their, their business plan to changing markets, changing technologies, changing opportunity. Very interesting. So you mentioned Amazon and Google as just uniquely memorable uh, startups. Uh, what about some memorable ones that you thought would work out that didn't? Or I know VCs love to talk about, look how silly we are. We had an opportunity to invest in X and we passed and, and now X is fabulously successful. What stands out in that space? Well, the standout in that space is the bad decision we made to invest in Fisker instead of in Tesla. And at, at, at the time, they had similar strategies, which was to enter the electric vehicle market with a high-end luxury, pretty expensive car, and then to drive the costs of that vehicle down over time. Uh, both companies were struggling to raise money. Uh, one of them had uh, an experienced executive from the automobile industry, a, fundamentally a designer by the name of Henrik Fisker. 
as its founder and CEO. The other had Elon Musk, who had no auto industry experience, but was determined to reinvent every part of the automotive car, uh, viewing it more as a machine-to-run software than a collection of, of subsystems procured from the automobile industry. We made the wrong call, and the rest <laughs> is history. That that Fisker, that first Fisker car was just a gorgeous design, and at the time Tesla was taking old Lotus convertibles and filling them with laptop batteries. Between the two, it's pretty easy to see how the Fisker um, opportunity really looked more intriguing than Tesla did way back when. How typical is that for the world of venture? Happens all the time. All the time. That's what makes the job of finding funding and accelerating the success of entrepreneurs hard. To say the very least. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. So there was just a new report that came out. It said renewable energy in the U.S. has quadrupled over the past decade. So uh, we're all good, right? There's nothing else to worry about with the climate? Oh, I wish that was true. No, I came to this book, this project, this passion, back in 2006 when Al Gore's movie, you remember An Inconvenient Truth? Sure. And uh, I took my family and friends to see it, and we came back for a dinner conversation and uh, went around the table to see what people thought. When it came turn for my 16-year-old daughter, Mary Dorr, she said, I'm scared and I'm angry. She said, Dad, your generation created this problem. You better fix it. And Barry, I, I, I was speechless. I had no idea what to say. So I set out with partners of mine at Kleiner Perkins to understand the extent of the climate crisis, even hired Al Gore as a partner. And over time, over three funds, invested a third up to a half of the funds total about a billion dollars in some uh, 70 climate ventures most of which failed and in fact it's hard it's very hard to grow a climate tech or green tech venture it was pretty lonely in the early days of doing that and we almost lost all of our investments but we stood by these entrepreneurs and they produced companies like Beyond Meat or Enphase or the Nest Smart Thermostats, and today are, are worth some $3 billion. But that was then, this is now. I think what's important about now is we need way greater ambition and speed to avert catastrophic, ir- ir- irreversible climate crisis. I mean, the evidence is all around us. We've We've got devastating hurricanes and, and floods and wildfires and, and, and uh, 10 million climate refugees. Uh, the IPCC says that if we don't reduce our carbon emissions by 2030, by 50, 55 percent, we will see global warming overshoot by more than two degrees Celsius, nearly four degrees Fahrenheit. And the Paris Accords, which were agreed to in 2015, if we were achieving them, would still cause us to land 
at around 2 degrees Celsius. The bad news is we're not close to achieving any of those goals. So the latest report from the UN said this is a, a code red problem. And, and, and I also see all problems as opportunities. Barry, I, I think this, this is going to be the greatest opportunity, human opportunity, social opportunity, economic opportunity of the 21st century. So let's talk a little bit about that opportunity. You talk in the book about cutting emissions in half by 2030 and net zero by 2050, and you reference six main areas of attack, transportation, uh, the electrical grid, food, protecting nature, cleaning up industry, and then removing carbon from the atmosphere. Let's talk a little bit about each of those because they're all quite fascinating. We were talking about Tesla. How quickly do we think that we're going to be past internal combustion engines with a fully electrified transportation network? Well, that's a great question. And and we can, I want to put this in context. Every year, we dump 59 gigatons of carbon, greenhouse gas emissions, in the atmosphere as if it's some kind of free and open sewer. And so the book and the research behind it has built a plan in electrifying transportation and the other five for which each of the objectives has three to five key results. These are Andy Grove Intel style, very measurable, specific steps. Uh, In transportation, it says that electric vehicles will achieve parity, price performance parity, with combustion engines in the U.S. by 2024. It says one of two new personal vehicles purchased worldwide are electric vehicles by 2030. So what I'm trying to say is this is a global plan. We've seen some nations of the world, some states like California, say they're going to ban the sale of internal combustion vehicles. And there's also key results for buses, for trucks, for miles driven, for airplanes and maritime. And this whole plan is available for free. You can download it at the website speedandscale.com. So it's, it's pragmatic, it's ambitious, it's almost unachievable. It's a total of 55 key results for the world, numeric, time-bound, and we've got to get after them all at once. We can't take turns. We're not going to achieve all of these, Barry. It's, uh, but if we fall short on one, we can make ground faster in others. Now, I don't want to intimidate people by how big, how tall an order this is. The, the book also includes 35 stories from entrepreneurs and policymakers and, and leaders, uh, innovators, uh, leaders of indigenous uh, tribes that describe in their own words their struggle, their successes, their, their journey uh, to, to change the world. One of my favorites is of a cross-country team who got together to, posi- to petition their, their school district to go to cleaner buses. They were sick and tired of running behind diesel buses with polluted air, and it, it shows that something that I, I'm, I deeply believe, and that is we're fast running out of time. And, and so, yes, we need individuals to take individual action, to eat less meat and use photovoltaic solar and buy an electric vehicle if you can afford it. But I've really written this book for the leader inside of everyone, their inner leader, and that's their ability to influence others to act as a group, like this cross-country team of runners in Maryland who uh, got their school district to adopt electric buses. What the book shows is that we can get this job done. But as I said, we're fast running out of time. So, so let's, let's talk a little bit about that. By the way, by the, way the, the bus discussions in the book are quite fascinating, not just because China leapt out to a big lead and have been very aggressively replacing diesel buses with electric buses, but you helped fund an entrepreneur in the U.S. 
that's gone around and has done a great job getting cities to purchase uh, electric buses. The um, transportation grid is clearly an issue, but as you point out, that's only six gigatons. A bigger issue is the grid, the electric grid, which produces 21 gigatons of emissions. Tell us about what we need to do to decarbonize the electrical grid. Uh, 100%. You're, you're right. If we move to electric vehicles, but we still use coal to generate electricity, we, we won't have reduced emissions. And the biggest opportunity is to decarbonize the grid. And, and, and that's to take today's 24 gigatons of emissions, mostly from coal, also natural gas, to generate electricity. Take that 24 down to 3 gigatons. So the first key result, the biggest of them, is to get 50% of our electricity from zero emission sources globally by 2025 and get it down to 38%, get, get a get a 90% by 2035. That would save us 16 and a half gigatons. Simply put, we need to move to renewable sources like wind and solar and invest in longer-term durable storage so that we have reliable energy when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. So, so let's talk about that battery technology a little bit. Uh, we've seen a series of incremental improvements over time but nothing has been like an order of magnitude improvement. Will we be able to get there soon enough? Do we need a Manhattan Project for batteries, or are all those incremental improvements compounding and, and we'll get there eventually? Much, much of the improvement that is needed in all these technologies is lowering their costs. And so batteries today are still too expensive for electric vehicles in India and in China. They're barely affordable in the U.S. marketplace. Right. And so the book tells the story of QuantumScape. I'll disclose a public company that I've invested in and serve on the board of, and an entrepreneur by the name of Jagdeep Singh. And he is going for a quantum improvement in batteries to more than double their energy density. The energy density of a battery is how much energy you'll get out of it for a pound of weight of a battery. And it's especially important in electric vehicles because the most expensive part of the vehicle is the battery, and it's the heaviest part. And you've got to use energy to move the weight around. So if you double the energy density of a battery, you can get a three or four times systems improvement in the vehicle itself. I, I'm uh, I, I'm not expecting, I don't think anyone is forecasting an order of magnitude improvement. Mm -hmm. And we've seen considerable lowering costs of batteries over time. But the QuantumScape innovation, which is an all-solid-state battery, would be a genuine breakthrough. Let, let's talk a little bit about food, another key source of, of emissions. How can we become more efficient in growing the food, affecting the menu of what we eat, and, and reducing enough food waste to make a difference? Well, there's, there's three big things to do about food. The, the first is to reduce the meat and dairy in our diets. And I'm not saying cut them out entirely, but to replace some of that with delicious, healthy, plant-based proteins. And the book tells the story of uh, Beyond Meat and the crusade of its founder, his struggles. He mortgaged his house to lead the revolution in plant-based protein. It turns out that there's a billion cows on the planet. And the book tells you their story as well. If they were a nation, <laughs> it would be the third largest country in terms of the emissions. The second big thing to do about food is to reduce food waste. Globally, 30% of the food that we produce is wasted. And taking some straightforward measures, we think that can be reduced. Our goal is to reduce it to 10% of the food that we produce, particularly when you consider the population will grow to 10 billion by, 20, by, by the end of the century. 
finally, we've got to get more efficient with how we grow food. And we can, for example, apply fertilizer much more precisely with new technologies. All in all, the food sector is a way for us to reduce 9 gigatons of emissions to 2 gigatons by 2050, or a, a net gain of 7 out of the 59 gigatons that we've got to drive to zero. So we, we spend a lot of time talking about beef and agriculture generally, but let's talk about commercial fishing. What's the impact of our fishing practices on the, the health of the oceans and its ability to absorb carbon and reflect heat? Well, o- overfishing, together with overdrilling and overdevelopment, have, have released huge amounts of carbon from the ocean floor and, and, and life. And if we prevented the destruction of mangroves and other ocean life, we could prevent a gigaton of emissions from entering the atmosphere every year. Our plan calls to eliminate deep sea bottom trawling, which is an especially destructive practice. Bottom trawling releases one and a half gigatons of CO2 equivalent emissions. It also calls for increasing the protection of oceans to 30% by 2030 and 50% by 2050. I want to call out this is an area of climate ambition that Walmart is staking out an important and powerful leadership position. Not only have they said they're going to have their supply chain be carbon neutral by 2040, but they are going to preserve, protect millions of acres of land and ocean water in the effort to become the first scale regenerative company. Hmm. Really, really interesting. So very often the average person listening to a conversation like this thinks, well, what can I do? I'm just one person. What's the balance of responsibility between individuals on one side and, and government and institutions on the other? Well, we need all the forces in our economy, in our society, to come together and work on this. We need innovators. We need entrepreneurs. We need policymakers. We need investors. We need to hear more from impassioned youth. You know, in 2018, Greta Thunberg was a single high school student skipping school on Fridays. A year later, in 2019, in December, she'd organized a million-person march in a hundred cities around the world. And specifically, she made the climate crisis a top-two voting issue in the nations in Europe. Barry, it is not a top voting issue in the U.S. It's not a top issue in China or even in India. So we have work to do, and that's one of our accelerants, the ways we get all this done faster, and that's to turn movements into specific actions. We really need individuals to lead others in powerful ways. That's, for example, employees pushing your employers to make net zero commitments or shareholders and investors demanding changes in the boardroom. It turns out that changing the light bulbs and eating less meat is important, but we've got to go further. We've got to change our laws or even our lawmakers in order to avert this climate crisis. Quite quite fascinating. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. I want to talk about some of the things you've said in the book that apply everywhere, but are especially applicable to, to 
the climate crisis. Let's start with, quote, it seems every dozen years we witness magical, ever exponentially larger waves of innovation. So so let's start first with climate. How uh, and where are those waves of innovation coming uh, that'll help ameliorate the climate crisis? Well, the, the uh, innovations are happening on many fronts. Uh, uh, materials sciences, electrochemistry, uh, biology. The, the, the opportunity that the climate transition to a clean energy economy represents is the largest of our lifetimes. It's a bigger mobilization than even the effort of the Allies to defeat the Nazi Axis in World War II. You'll remember then, we shut down for four years all manufacturing of automobiles and appliances and instead created 268,000 fighter aircraft, 20,000 battleships. It, 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 was, it, it was a monumental effort dealing with an existential threat. And that same level of innovation and ambition is required to win in this climate campaign. Uh, other areas of breakthroughs or innovations, uh, I'm even becoming a believer that we'll see nuclear fusion. That's the kind of clean energy that comes from the sun, practical within a decade. Concrete and steel that's carbon-free, long-duration storage. The opportunities to reimagine and reinvent how we create, share, transmit, and use energy in every facet of our lives is as big an opportunity as we'll see in our lifetimes. So, so let's stay focused on that opportunity for a minute. This isn't a, a charity or a, or a foundation that's doing this for free. When, when we look around, there are actual venture investments that you've been making successfully. All right, so you passed on Tesla, but somebody put money into Tesla. Uh, wind turbines, solar, uh, Beyond Meat uh, is now a public company. You were an early investor into that. You're looking at this as more than just, hey, we have to do this in order to make the, sure that we don't have a runaway greenhouse effect and Earth turns into Venus and becomes uninhabitable. But there are also very legitimate economic opportunities here also. Uh, expound on those a little bit. Well, uh, there's no better example than Tesla, which has uh, gone from a struggling company reliant on loans. Thank you, United States taxpayers, uh, to the seventh most valuable company in the world. And by some measures, Elon Musk is the most is the richest individual in the world. He took on huge risks and he delivered for his customers, his shareholders, his country and his planet. And the best of the work that Elon has done is inspire, perhaps through fear, but certainly by example, the rest of the automobile industry to accelerate their shift to clean and electric vehicles. So uh, this, this is, uh, I, I like to say, the mother of all markets. It's a monster market. Batteries alone, the batteries to move from internal combustion vehicles to electric vehicles are estimated to be $400 billion per year, Barry, wow. for 20 years. We, we are, we are going to, we must recreate all the infrastructure that we use to power our planet. Let's talk about something we haven't gotten to. When we were talking about those larger waves of innovation, lots of folks are excited about blockchain and crypto and Web 3.0. But when we look at things like Bitcoin, it's a big energy hog. How do we reconcile uh, all the wealth that's being created there with its massive electricity uh, consumption? Uh, its electricity consumption is not sustainable. And so we're going to have to move to clean Bitcoin, green Bitcoin. The, and, and we'll get there by regulation, if not by other market forces, I, I would predict. Today, I believe that Bitcoin uses as much energy as the entire nation of Sweden. So Bitcoin, I believe, is here to stay, but it, it's, we, we can't fuel it through 
dirty electricity. You, you mentioned concrete earlier, um, and I also read in the book that you want to um, end single-use plastics. What does the world of material science promise us for replacing things in, in those spaces? How do you replace concrete? How do you replace single-use plastic? Concrete is probably the hardest problem of all because in the production of the concrete, you, you almost must uh, create carbon emissions. Uh, we can reduce the energy used to make concrete. There are some concrete innovations that absorb the CO2 into the material, but that's an area where we need more innovation. What was your second area? Single-use plastics. Single-use plastics. Uh, the, the plan calls for the banning and really the replacement of single-use plastics. The banning of single-use plastics, and in general to replace plastics with compostable uh, materials that can be uh, recycled. And I am confident that with investment and entrepreneurial work, we can get that done. So we haven't really talked about um, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. I get the sense from some people that they're expecting some technological magic bullet that's going to solve climate change. Tell us about how we can remove carbon from the atmosphere, and, and is there a magic bullet coming? You know, our <laughs> the speed and scale plan calls for us to remove 10 gigatons of carbon dioxide per year. I emphasize remove. These will be gigatons of CO2 emissions that we were not able to eliminate, we were not able to cut, we were not able to slash. There'll be some uses of aviation fuels, as an example, or, or other stubborn carbon. Two approaches to this, one of which is to innovate around nature-based ways of removing CO2. For example, growing greater kelp forests uh, in the oceans. But the other that has uh, captured a lot of attention is called direct air capture, or that's engineered removal of carbon. Mm -hmm. Think of them as kind of mechanical trees. And, and, and this technology works today, but only at small scale. It, it sucks the CO2 out of the air. It requires a lot of electricity in order to do that. And so it's, it's very expensive today, some... Uh, $600 per ton. If we've got to remove five gigatons per year at $600 per ton, that's $3 trillion a year. And it's hard to see how that's affordable. So entrepreneurs are hard at work to lower those costs, and I hope they do. So uh, there's a quote I like from another venture capitalist who said, venture capital properly deployed can solve the biggest problems, filling a void left by shrinking scientific ambitions of governments, foundations, and international organizations. What are your thoughts on that approach? How, how crucial is venture capital to our future, and can it replace these other entities? Uh, venture capital is crucial, and it's stepping up to the challenge. There'll be an estimated $30 billion invested of venture capital in climate technologies this year. Our plan calls for $50 billion this year, but venture capital is not going to get this job done on its own. Uh, we need government-funded research and development to grow in the U.S. alone to $40 billion a year. Other countries have got to triple their funding. We need project financing. We need philanthropic investing. Jeff Bezos's commitment of $10 billion to the Bezos Earth Fund is the largest philanthropic commitment to climate, uh, the climate crisis that we've ever witnessed or enjoyed. Uh, it, 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 there's really four accelerators that'll get this job done. One of them is investing. Another is innovation, the work of entrepreneurs. But I think the hardest are gonna be to turn our movements into actions so we get the politics and the policy correct because it's gonna take a massive, collective, coordinated effort to achieve our ultimate OKR, and that's to take 59 gigatons of emissions to net zero by 2050. 
That, that's an ambitious uh, target. Uh, and if we miss that target, what are the ramifications? We'll leave our kids and our grandkids an uninhabitable planet. We'll see the Arctic sea ice surely uh, melt away. We'll have, the estimates are up to a billion climate refugees. There's 10 million of them already. Hundreds of millions of people will starve. It's, uh, it's unthinkable. And so we must get this done. So, so let me turn this back to, to what's going on in the world of venture now. When the early decades of, of your work at, at Kleiner Perkins was into a very friendly IPO market, how much does timing matter broadly? Meaning, hey, if, if there's an exit available, if there's a, a, a big IPO market, that makes it more likely people are going to invest in these companies and have a successful exit. Tell us a little bit about timing. Well, yeah, you know, investors, myself included, will uh, stop at nothing to copy success. So <laughs> the timing of today's markets for climate technologies, whether it's Tesla or Rivian or uh, better batteries or Beyond Meat, is good. And I would say in the long run is going to continue to be good because the size of the markets and, and, and the need, the economic need, the opportunity, and the planetary pressures. Huh. So if a younger venture capitalist or a, a newfound venture fund came to you and asked for advice, what would you tell them about this opportunity? Oh, uh, th- there's so many different venture firms and strategies. I, I, I would say to them that this is the greatest opportunity of the 21st century, uh, that they should be strategic about their contribution. Is it to work with early stage entrepreneurs in removing technical risk? Or at the other extreme, is it to be smart and sharp about project financing? But the, the overall cost of the transition from a dirty fossil economy to a clean new energy economy is $4 trillion per year. Year. That sounds like a big number until you compare it with the costs of dirty energy, the social costs, the disruption, the premature deaths. One in five deaths are premature due to carbon pollution. Those come in at about $10 billion per year. So it's, it's literally cheaper to s- save the earth than it is to ruin it. And and there's just seems to be endless amounts of, of cash pouring into the venture capital sector. Arguably, it's never been higher. What are your thoughts on this? Does it worry you? What What's the driver of all this money sloshing around? Uh, some people say that, that we're experiencing a bubble, a bubble in fintech or Bitcoin or climate technologies. I see it very differently. Uh, I think it's a boom. And historically, whether it was the advent of transcontinental railroads or the automobiles, we saw booms which led to full employment, overinvestment, rapid innovation. And no, not all of those car companies survived, but I think the same will be true of the other fields of innovation. I think one of the things that gives me great hope is the power of human ingenuity. We got ourselves into this fix and uh, Barry, I'm betting we're going to figure a way out. So what do you say to people who sort of posture Silicon Valley's best days are are behind it? Do you have a response to any of those folks? Oh, I think they're wrong. <laughs> I think provided we deal with this existential threat, the climate crisis, and that is not guaranteed, but provided we do that and we get a 50% reduction in the next decade, I think we're on track for a, a wonderful, prosperous, healthy planet. Can I tell you, and I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but I, you know, I read a ton of books for uh, the show, and I found the book really quite fascinating. And it's pretty obvious to me that an engineer was behind this. There's just a lot of great slides and 
um, charts and graphs, and it's not just all text. It, parts of it are narrative and parts of it are historical, and it, it reminds me of a well-made slide deck. So um, nice well, job for on the that. I want to send you a bound version of the book. If you'll email me your physical mailing address, there's one other thing, one other story I might tell you about sure. the book. I was uh, talking the other day with a reader, uh, a mom who told me that every night she takes two or three pages of the book and she reads them together with her daughter. And then they talk about together what that means for the world her daughter's going to inherit. And I thought, wow, that's the use of the book I never imagined. And one, one that I'm honestly proud of. How it looks like this was the work of a lot of different people. How, how did you end up researching and, and writing this? Well, we talked to a, a hundred different leaders in, in the field, policymakers, researchers, modelers, uh, activists, uh, and, and from those selected some 35 stories. We ended up with a thousand different data points that we needed to verify and collected those into 500 endnotes, which are in the book. And I, I did it with an amazing small team of uh, three or four on the research and writing staff. Uh, I'm, I'm an engineer, as you know, and, and so I'm, I'm not so good with words. And it, I, I had the benefit of a writing team that helped make this much more readable. Well, well, it shows. You you can see the bo the book is a fast read. I I sat down with a, a bunch of stickies and a highlighter, and found myself just plowing through a chapter after chapter. It was it was a, a relatively quick read and and very easy to put down and then pick back up again. Uh, each chapter is very distinct, and you've really laid out um, a plan to uh, prevent climate catastrophe from taking place. So. Thank you for that. One, one, one thing I want to make sure your audience knows is they can get a free infographic. It's a single poster-sized piece of paper that has on both sides of it all the objectives, all the key results, all the measures. And it, it's reassuring for people who are fearful that there is a plan and that if we do these things, we can find a way to a habitable planet. That's what we've got to do. Huh. So I know I only have you for a limited amount of time. Let me jump to my favorite questions that I ask all of my guests, starting with, tell us what you've been streaming these days. Give us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever podcast you're listening to. Well, so I, I haven't had time for streaming on Netflix. I've been uh, doing research, reading books and papers on, uh, on, on, on the climate crisis itself, but uh, getting this uh, word out, I've uh, listened to a I've uh, started listening to a couple of new podcasts: John Heileman's Hell and High Water, sure, and Tim Ferriss's show, both of which I think have a distinctive imprint from their hosts. Tell us about your mentors who helped to shape your career. Well, the biggest influence on my life was my dad, Lou Dor, an engineer entrepreneur and, and hero. And, and I've been blessed by a, a, a number of mentors, perhaps most notable of them, Andy Grove. Mm -hmm. And what I learned from him at Intel prompted me to write a first book called Measure What Matters. And that tells stories of a dozen different organizations using OKRs, which is what then I applied to the climate crisis. I will tell you, Al Gore is a hero of mine. Uh, he's wonderfully resolute man who's impassioned, uh, effective, and 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 funny. He and I, he and I talk regularly about the climate crisis. Tell us about some of your favorite books. What are your all-time favorites, and what are you reading right now? So uh, my current reading, no surprise, is 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 largely around the climate crisis. Uh, I love Elizabeth Colbert's Under a White. Sky, which described climate futures. And two other books are How to Avoid a Climate Disaster by Bill Gates, a very accessible book, and a profile of a new profile of Winston Churchill called The Splendid and the Vile. 
two good recommendations. Uh, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who wanted to pursue a career in venture investing? I would, I, I would say to her, uh, gain experience as an entrepreneur. Uh, I, I repeat the advice that I was given early in my career, which was go get a real job in a real growing tech company and uh, sharpen your skills in the real hard world of business knocks and then take that experience to help other entrepreneurs succeed. And our final question, what do you know about the world of venture investing today that you wish you knew 40 years ago? I, I wish I knew 40 years ago how important the team is. The leadership of the team, the recruiting of the team, the growing of the team, because uh, in, in the end, it's it's more than large markets. It's more than than compelling technologies. It's uh, teams who know how to execute well. Huh. Really, really fascinating stuff. Thanks, John, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with John Doerr. He is a partner at famed venture firm Kleiner Perkins and the author of the new book, Speed and Scale, an action plan for solving our climate crisis now. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out all of our previous discussions. You can find those wherever you find your favorite podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Acast, wherever. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Paris Wold is our producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.